turn to that passage of Scripture that Dave read a few moments ago from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Today we find ourselves in chapter 14 in this continuing study in this portion of God's Word. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find today's Scripture on uh, page 1114. 1114. We're looking at chapters 14, verses 1 through 25 today. Now, before I begin, uh, let me just um, preface my message this morning with a couple of caveats. The first is this. The subject of chapter 14 is, uh, in its nature, so very vast and theologically complex that there is no way, I know this even before I start, that there is no way that I can completely uh, deal with every aspect and dimension of all the issues that are raised by chapter 14, mainly due to our limited time. If we had the luxury of having all day to go at this, we might be able to plumb the depths of some of these things and have dialogue back and forth. We don't have that luxury this morning, especially with our celebration around the Lord's table. My time is shortened even a bit there. So I want to say, I know that speakers are never to apologize for themselves, but I want to apologize in saying that it would take a book to fully consider all the issues that chapter 14 raised. And even then, we might not be able to get at them all. So I know you don't need to tell me that it's very possible this this morning that inevitably I will not deal with some crucial area of this whole issue of speaking in tongues. And there may be something that you want me to really pound hard on and I might not get to it. Well, let's have coffee and talk about it. But it's just probably not going to happen in the brief time we have this morning. The second caveat is this, and it's related to the first that the issue that Paul addresses here in chapter 14, the issue of speaking in tongues and prophecy, is such a controversial issue that I I know full well that there are going to be some of you who will adamantly disagree with what I have to say because of your own personal convictions, either on this end of the continuum or on this end of the continuum, and I'll explain what those ends are in a moment, but you may disagree with everything that I have to say. You might be tempted to rise out of your seat and come and wring my neck because you think that I am biased or prejudiced in, in, in my interpretation of Scripture this morning and you disagree with what I have to say. I want you to know that I know that there are individuals in both camps on this issue, in this congregation. There are some people who their background, their experience, their doctrine, their theology has taught them that this particular gift of the Spirit ceased at the end of the apostolic period and is therefore no longer one of the operational gifts in the church today. There are some of you who are fully persuaded that way. I also know that this wide, diverse body of Christ, that there are some of you who are fully convinced that not only is it an operational gift in the church today, but that every true believer, every fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, everyone who's serious in going into the depths of God's grace and mercy should not only accept the fact that this gift is operational in the church today, but should also be seeking the gift of tongues. And if you don't have the gift of tongues, shame on you. There are some who would say, you don't have the fullness of the Spirit. You haven't been baptized of the Spirit. You haven't experienced the 
as some would call it, the second blessing, and, and therefore you, you just haven't arrived. Now, I understand that I'm speaking to, to two different camps and everything in between. And so I, I know that some of you are just going to be displeased with me this morning. But I'm going to deliver the Word of God and the message that He's placed on my heart. And I hope to be able to say things this morning with scriptural backing in an even-handed sort of way and have you know that I love you. Do you know that? I love you. And, and I hope that that comes across in what I have to say today, no matter what your personal persuasion. Now, because of the shortness of our time, I'm not going to do a full exposition of what the Bible says about speaking in tongues, as useful as that might be this morning. My goal in this message is, is very much limited. I want to briefly explain the issue that Paul is addressing in chapter 14, and then I want to apply it to the Church of Jesus Christ today. Now, you will remember, if you've been with us in a series of messages, you'll remember that right now, where Paul is in his letter, starting at chapter 12, he's been addressing some of the issues within Corinthian worship, particularly the issue of spiritual gifts and the abuses and the misuses of spiritual gifts in the worshiping part and life of the Corinthian church. Last week when we gathered together, we considered Paul's great statement as it's contained in chapter 13 uh, on love. And his desire was there to remind the Corinthians that their motivation in the use of these gifts should always be, the motivation, the heart of this should always be agape love. And, and so that falls right in the midst of his discussion on spiritual gifts. And the general, general argument of now what he's coming to in chapter 14, what we're considering this morning, is this. That if love is our motivation in the way we use our gifts in the body of Christ, and if love controls the way in which we exercise our spiritual gifts within the body of Christ, then, if love is our motivation, then, Paul says, clearly... We should place more emphasis on the gift of prophecy, which edifies the whole church, rather than considering the gift of tongues. The gift of prophecy, in Paul's estimation, is to be considered superior to the gift of tongues, which he says is sometimes only, only sometimes for the edification of the congregation. Most of the time, Paul says, the gift of tongues is for the edification of self. It is a self-edifying gift. It is not a gift whose purpose is to edify the body of Christ. The problem in Corinth was this. There were a number of people within the church who had become persuaded that speaking in tongues, glossolalia, Glossolalein, which means to speak in other languages in the Greek. That speaking in tongues was a kind of spiritual badge of honor. Apparently, some of the members of the Corinthian church had gotten the idea that possessing this particular gift was an indication that you had arrived spiritually, that you were spiritually elite that you had more spiritual maturity if you spoke in tongues than those who did not possess the gift. And as you can imagine, 
this created a great deal of uh, a number of problems for the leadership of the Corinthian church, especially for believers who didn't possess the gift of tongues. And then to complicate matters, these particular members were abusing the exercise of this gift when the church of God came together for their public worship and it had became a chaotic mess. And the worship assemblies were just filled with disorganization and chaos and and the church wasn't being edified and God wasn't being glorified and it had become a, just a, a corrupt mess. And so Paul addresses this issue and after discussing the diversity of the gifts and talking about the motivation that must lie behind the gifts, that is love, then he gets to the issue of speaking in tongues and along with that the corresponding neglect of the Corinthians' gift of prophecy which he says they should have valued more highly and practiced more highly than they did because of their emphasis on tongues. Now, what's interesting to me is that obviously in 2,000 years of Christian history, not much has changed. That the church is today still in kind of the same murky waters as it was 2,000 years ago on this issue. Because there is in the church today there are those who, like the Corinthians, who are wont to treat the gift of speaking in tongues as the gift of the Spirit that everyone should seek. And there are some who would go so far as to contend that speaking in tongues is a sign or a mark of your Spirit's filling, that you aren't truly filled with the Spirit of God unless you have the sign gift of speaking in tongues that it is a necessary mark of the baptism of the Spirit. It is a sign of spiritual maturity. There are some who would go so far, believe it or not, who would go so far to say, as to say, if you don't have the gift of tongues, you truly aren't saved. They take it to the nth degree. But also in the church today, on the other end of the spectrum, you have some who have made what I believe is the unprovable assumption that God withdrew or ceased. Cessation is the theological word that's applied to this. That the gift of tongues ceased at the conclusion of the apostolic period. That once the church had been set up and began to grow and the apostolic period came to a close, that this particular gift, along with a few others, was withdrawn and ceased to exist. And when this gift, the gift of tongues, appears in the church, in the modern church today, that it is either demonic or it is of the flesh. And as a result of these polar opposites, this issue has become a source of great division within the church of Jesus Christ. And over my lifespan of 52 years, I've seen a number of church bodies split over this issue. Brothers and sisters leave fellowship with one another because they can't come to terms with one another and maintain the unity of the faith. I want to say, and I want to say it clearly, in my opinion, both extremes on this issue are wrong. As I mentioned last week, I have come to my own conclusion. You need to come to yours. But I have come to my own personal conviction that the New Testament is not explicitly clear on this point, whether the gifts have ceased or operative today. I believe, 
I believe that the gift is still operative today. Whilst I think a reasonable case could be made from the Scripture that the sign gifts had special significance in the first century, and you could make that case pretty much from the book of Acts, it's not clear to me, I can't say 100% sure, it's not clear to me that you can say definitely and without equivocation that the gift of tongues died out when the Scriptures were completed or when the first apostles passed away. I just can't find scriptural proof for that. But it also, on the other hand, causes me grave concern when individuals say that all believers, true followers of Jesus Christ, should seek after this particular gift, the gift of tongues. That the gift of tongues is a mark of the Spirit's filling of holiness of spiritual maturity. I think that extreme is just as dangerous as saying the gift is never operational in the church age. Because I don't believe the gift of tongues was ever meant by God to be a mark of spiritual maturity. It's interesting to me to note that this issue plagued the early days of the Christian Missionary Alliance, of which this church is a part. You may not completely know the history of the Christian Missionary Alliance, but in the early 1900s, specifically in 1907, there was a move of the Spirit that moved across the campus of the Missionary Training Institute in Nyack, New York, which is today Nyack College, one of our Alliance schools. And the movement of God swept across the campus of the Missionary Training Institute and caused some people to be moved by the Spirit and to speak in unknown tongues. At the same time, there was a great move of the Spirit that was going on in our nation, if you know your Christian history at all, on Azusa Street in California. And the Holy Spirit was moving in signs and wonders and in miraculous ways. And so there was this, this religious fervor that was going on within Christianity in the early part of the 20th century that was, was saying, everybody needs this gift. And so the founder of our denomination, A.B. Simpson, was pressed upon to, to kind of outline what the alliance position would be on this whole issue of the gift of tongues. And here is exactly what he had to say. Simpson, on this complex issue, said the following. We believe the scriptural teaching to be that the gift of tongues is one of the gifts of the Spirit, and that it may be present in the normal Christian assembly as a sovereign, each word is so important, as a sovereign bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon such as He wills, that is, God wills. We do not believe that there is any scriptural evidence for the teaching that speaking in tongues is the sign of having been filled with the Holy Spirit, nor do we believe that it is the plan of God that all Christians should possess the gift of tongues. This gift, that is the gift of tongues, is one of many gifts and is given to some for the benefit of all. The attitude toward the gift of tongues held by the pastor and people should be, seek not, forbid not. This we hold to, to be the part of wisdom for this hour. And out of this was birthed in Simpson's heart 
one of our Alliance hymns in which he writes powerful words. I hope you grasp the intent of them. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is His Word. Once His gifts, I wanted. Now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now Himself alone. I think Simpson got it right. That when we as followers of Jesus Christ get our eyes on the gifts or any of the particular gifts, and we get our eyes off of the, the giver of the gifts, we are on a very dangerous path and a slippery slope. He says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the all-sufficient one, who is the Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. And don't get caught up with one gift. Yes, Simpson says, the gift is still operational in the church today, but we do not believe that it's the sign gift or mark of the Spirit's filling. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, what in the world? I, I've never even heard about this tongue speaking. What is the gift of tongues? One theologian uh, who has his own set of ideas about this, but one theologian, Charles Ryrie, uh, I think his answer to this question, what is the gift of tongues, is an excellent one. He says, tongues is the God-given ability to speak in a language on earth that is unknown to the speaker. Interpretation of tongues is the ability to interpret the message in a language understood by the hearers. Unquestionably, the first occurrence of tongues in Acts chapter 2 was different languages. The presumption is that the tongues that Paul is speaking about in Corinthians were no different. So the gift of tongues is this language, an earth language, that communicates a message from God and also authenticates the Christian message. Paul says here in chapter 14 of Corinthians that the, the gift of tongues is an authentication. It validates, it verifies that this is from God. Well, you might say, where in the Scriptures do you find that, Rick? Well, the first place is in the book of Acts on the first day of Pentecost. There appeared, if you remember, on the day of Pentecost, there appeared the Holy Spirit uh, in a cloven tongue like as a fire, which sat upon the individual heads of the disciples gathered there. And they were filled, the scripture says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened as a result of their filling? They began to speak with other tongues, other languages, so that people who were gathered round began to hear the gospel of Christ in their own language. And it seems that when you look at Acts, that the whole purpose of tongues in Acts was in, to enable people to hear God's gospel, Christ's gospel in their own language and to demonstrate clearly that God was at work. He was up to something, that God was among them and that God was, pardon me, building his church. So the first place you find it is in Acts chapter 2. The second place you find it is in Mark chapter 16 and verse 17, where Jesus was saying farewell to his disciples, and he said to his disciples, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, and they will speak in new tongues. Now there's some controversy that surrounds that particular verse and using it as a, 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 a apologetic for... Uh, tongues, but we'll not go into that this morning. 
The third place that you find this is in Acts chapter 10, verses 45 through 46, when Peter is addressing uh, the, the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And it tells us there that the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were assembled in that house. And what happened when the Holy Spirit fell? They began to speak in tongues. Unknown languages. And then the fourth place you find this is when Paul came to the city of Ephesus and he found a few, what shall we say, unrecognizable believers there. And he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit. And they said, Holy Spirit? We don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. So he he did pray with them and they received the Holy Spirit. And we're told in Acts chapter 19 and verse 6 that when they received the Holy Spirit that they began to speak in tongues, in unknown languages. Now, you may be surprised to find out that those are the only four places in the New Testament where it speaks about tongues. Two places in Acts, one place in Mark, one place in, in Ephesians. Or in uh, three places in Acts, one place in Mark. I've quoted them all. There aren't, there aren't any other. So what you have then, I think, is when you look at all of this, is a, a sovereignly given gift given first to the whole church on the day of Pentecost for the purpose of authenticating the Christian message and then several occasions where the gift of speaking in tongues was given to some, not to all, but to some of the church. And if I could just distill 1 Corinthians 14 down for you to a few sentences, it would look something like this. What Paul is saying in chapter 14 is this. Number one, Tongues is a legitimate gift of the Spirit, but by no means is it the greatest gift. Do you understand? Say yes or nod your head. Paul is saying it is a legitimate gift of the Spirit, but is not the greatest gift. Number two, he is saying because of the spectacular and mysterious nature of this gift, that it is often open to great abuse. Because it's kind of otherworldly and doesn't always fit our human comprehension, that sometimes this gift, when exercised within the body of Christ, Paul says, it, it is open, it is vulnerable to abuse. Do you understand? You still with me? Number three, he says, In chapter 14, it's always better to conduct services of public worship in a language that the people understand. He said, I would rather speak five intelligible words in a public assembly than to speak 10,000 words that no one can understand. So his point is rather clear. When the people of God come together for worship, Speak in a language that they understand. Do you understand? Then he says, where the gift of tongues is practiced, and especially in the public assemblies of the church, there are strict guidelines that must be followed. If the gift is used publicly in the public assemblies, you must follow the guidelines. And he goes into that in the latter part of chapter 14. And he concludes that 
and, and gives us healthy perspective on that when he says, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid, Paul says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And he gives some guidelines. And he says, look, if there's going to be speaking in tongues, there should only be two or three people who do speak in one service. There should be an interpretation of that tongue. And if, if the person with the gift of interpretations does not come and interpret what that message from God has been, and the people who have the gift of discernment, and we haven't spoken about the gift of discernment, now there's a gift, but those who have the gift of discernment within the body of Christ validate that indeed this is of the Spirit and not of the flesh, then the church listens to this message of God and its interpretation, and, and the church is edified and built up. But, if perchance the gift is exercised in a carnal or fleshly way, and there is no interpretation, then the one who is facilitating the public worship of God should tell the individual who got up to sit down and shut up. It should be ruled out of order. Or if those who have the gift of discernment discern that indeed this is not something of God, but it's something of the flesh or something of demons, it should also be ruled out of order. And so the church is obligated, I think. We are obligated to follow these guidelines. Now, I know there are some of you who are saying, well, why in the world are you even addressing this? I don't want this church to go crazy. And you are, you have a phobia about the gift of tongues. You're death on the gift of tongues. Anything that moves toward full gospel, Pentecostal, charismatic worship, you are, ooh, you just kind of, your skin begins to crawl. You, you have, and then there are some of you who are saying, oh, I'm so glad you're talking about this, Rick. I've been waiting for so long for you to talk about this. Because I just, I can't wait to stand to my feet and deliver a message from God in an unknown tongue. And I suppose next week when we gather, there'll be people popping up in all the pews. I want you to know if you do, we will follow the biblical guideline. And it must be of the Spirit. And I will ask those who have the gift of discernment in the body to discern and test the spirits. So Paul says, don't forbid the use of this gift. He says, I, I speak tongues more than all of you. He says that. So apparently he employed the gift. But he, he says, if you're going to choose gifts, if you're seeking gifts, seek prophecy. It edifies the congregation. And if the tongues is given in a public assembly, it must be done in an orderly fashion, and so on. So, we need to conclude. How, do, how in the world do I tie and cinch the sack? Well, I hope it will not seem out of place for me to address those 
who either in the past have spoken in tongues or currently in our congregation who speak in tongues or who are sympathetic to its practice. But I want to speak to you for a moment. I do not have the gift of tongues. I've sought it in the past. God has never sovereignly chosen to give it to me. I do not have the gift of tongues. But I am sympathetic to its practice as long as it follows biblical guidelines. And I want you to know that I and we accept you in the Lord Jesus Christ. We count you as valuable members of the body of Christ and as our beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord. And never would I want to say anything that would intentionally hurt you or destroy or set back your walk with God. It might be helpful, though, for me to make a a distinction at this point. There is, I think, a big difference between what happens in your private devotional life, your personal quiet times, and what happens in a public service. Among the hundreds of people who are part of FAC, there must be hundreds of different ways of communing with God. I know that to be true. That some of you use your quiet time to read the Psalms and pray. Some of you sing Psalms and spiritual songs to the Lord. Others of you, you use your personal quiet time to memorize Scripture. Some of you write in your journal. Others of you read, go out of the Book of Common Prayer. Some of you quietly meditate and sit quietly before the Lord. Some people pray on their way to work. Some people read great Christian classics. My point is this. Whatever you do in your personal quiet time is between you and the Lord. And if you have certain experiences which seem to be similar to the gift of tongues in the New Testament, I want you to know, who am I to object or judge that? Obviously, though, as one who is charged by God for the welfare and the unity of this church body, I and the Board of Elders have a greater interest in two key things. One, that what is taught from this pulpit and the lecterns in our church, that what is publicly taught is true to the Word of God and rests not on personal experience, but rests upon the final authority of Scripture. And secondly, that when the church gathers for public worship, that we are committed to following the guidelines that are laid out in Scripture and those that are laid out before us in chapter 14. But should you have a personal experience that is somewhat different, we want you to know that this not come between us and our service for the Lord. And we are intent upon keeping uh, and holding to the, the principle in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. So we need not have a phobia and fear practices that are different from our own. It has taken me a long time to discover this and embrace it, but I have found it truly to be liberating when I discovered that other people in this big old world of God's worship in different ways than I do. It's okay if people clap their hands when they sing. It's not necessarily a sign that they're gone mad or kooky. It's okay if people want to read a prayer out of the Book of Common Prayer or some other resource. 
It might, might not be for you, but it's their way of expressing praise and worship to God. It's okay. Even when the rest of the congregation is seated and the, the leader of worship has not instructed us to stand, if someone is moved by the Spirit to stand to their feet or get out into the aisle and lay prostrate before God, it is okay. You need not call the men with the white vests. It's okay if you stand in your pew and while we are singing, you get a wee bit excited and your body begins to move. It's okay. And I know that we evangelicals have a tendency to get uptight about other people who are in the body of Christ who choose to do things differently than we do. And I find that to be a shame because God's family is a big family. And if you don't believe it, go on one of our short-term missions experiences to the Dominican Republic or to Haiti or to Africa or to Poland or parts of Indonesia and the Pacific Rim, and you will discover that God has let some people into the body of Christ that, frankly, I would not have let in if I was head of the show. But thank God I'm not the keeper of the gate. God has let in everyone who is trusted in and truly repented of their sins and earnestly seeking to follow His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that no doubt includes some people whose style of worship is very different from what we do here in northwest Pennsylvania. And that's okay. And the way you worship is okay, too. And there should never be any judgment when somebody lifts their hands in praise or they're moved by the Spirit to get out. I've never seen it, but boy, would I like to, to get out into the aisle and, and as David did, dance before the Lord. It's okay. As long as it's of the Spirit. If the priesthood of the believers means anything, it means that each church responds to the lordship of Jesus Christ in its own way. Some will be Calvinistic, some will be Arminian, some will be Pentecostal, some will be Lutheran, some will baptize by immersion, some will sprinkle, some will pour, others will sing in Latin, some will sing with rock bands, some will sing with organs and trumpets. As long as the object of your worship is the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter the method. Some churches have a broad statement of faith. Others have very narrow. Lovely that two churches might coexist side by side for years and have very different ways of doing things. And I believe that that's a natural fact of life in the body of Christ. That the body of Christ is diverse. And even within this body, it is diverse. So, what do we do with all that? We purpose to have close and cordial relations. We seek to exercise our gifts motivated by love. We agree to disagree agreeably. You might be persuaded one way. I might be persuaded another. 
but it should not affect our unity in Christ. And we will love all those who are truly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, I bring my message to an end. And you say, thank God, I'm glad you're done. (laughs) Some of you, though, will not be satisfied with what I've said this morning because you found it to be too strict or you found it to be too liberal. And my reply is that it's always easier, it's always easier to go to the extremes of an issue. That's the safe way. It's the easy way. And I don't want to do that, and I don't think you do. Our goal here is to state clearly, seek to be good Bereans and understand what the Scriptures have to say, and live by the authority of the Word, and without unnecessarily dividing the body of Christ or alienating those in the body of Christ that may have different persuasions on spiritual matters. So next week when we come together, we come to the easy topic of the role of women in worship. (laughs) And I will be so glad when we move beyond 1 Corinthians. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we approach his table. Father God, as we come to your table this morning, we pray, O God, that you will move by your Spirit as we take the elements of bread and wine and that we would remember that night in which Jesus was betrayed and how he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you and how in the same way when the supper was over he took the cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to his disciples and said take this all of you and drink it this is the new covenant sealed in my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me so Lord as we gather at your table today feed us at this spiritual feast And draw us near with cords of loving kindness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.